0: This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is July twenty sixth, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio.
1: Hi, Brian. Uh, my name is Dave Plotkin. I was there between 2000 and 2004.
0: And can you tell me about any of the shows or programs you worked on or any of the departments you were in?
1: Oh, well, yeah. I was um, on the administrative board and I was the uh, program director for the Jazz Cafe classics from Hofstra. I was the student engineer and, um, I was a program director for another show too, but <laughs> I don't remember what it was. Um, and, uh, uh, Oh, and I, I did all the remote engineering and, and worked on a ton of the community volunteer shows like Gordon, uh, Frank and Gordon's, R and B serenade and, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Long Ireland show with Pat Thompson and Eileen and uh, Posh's Pogut and Baric Time Marathon. And geez, there was a lot of shows that I worked on. I was there. I practically lived there for the
0: for for four years. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you you had your hand in a little bit of of everything. Did you have any official titles of position? I know you said program director of a couple of stations. What, what were the, the positions that you had at the station? No,
1: no, no. Oh, that was it. I was the program oh. director for the jazz cafe, um, which was at that time, it was quite, um, a chunk of time. And I was program director for the classics for, from Hofstra. So really I programmed the station from nine in the morning, uh, or 10 in the morning, whenever Classics started, all the way through till five in the afternoon or six in the afternoon when the jazz cafe went off for uh, newsline. Okay. Um, and with the jazz cafe, we we did jazz, but I made it more of a standards format and actually it was getting, um, it was getting a lot of traction. It was getting a lot of listeners. Um, even Lou Reed's parents listened to that program and I went over and visited them. That was a fun, interesting Hofstra moment. Um, when uh, Lou Reed, the famous, uh, uh, um, rock star, uh, his parents called me and said, are you the kid on the radio? I got some records for you. Um, wow. Oh, yeah, that was neat. And we sat cross-legged on the floor of his parents' house listening to baby stories of Lou Reed, why his mom made us cookies. True story. Wow. Um, yeah, well, that show had a big following. And I remember one of the students saying, "Um, oh, I don't believe that there are more than 10 people listening to you. I said, hmm. I said, well, we're going to have a uh, giveaway coming up in a little bit. So I went on the mic and I said, you know, to the uh, 10th caller, I'll um, we'll have a giveaway for whatever it was, Bucky Pizzarelli and concert at some wherever, a Planning Fields operatum, whatever it was. And the phone lines lit up and we were mm-hmm. doing your caller 1, your caller 2, you call... and I remember that I think it was a sports guy he was just like his jaw just dropped and I said yeah the station actually I'm sure we we if we had had promotion we would have definitely made the ratings on that that program um it was it was great um we were the first group to abolish the no singles policy um uh Bruce had this thing against uh Uh, us playing any single records. And I understand his idea in theory was that he didn't want us to sound like the clone zone and just playing the same five songs over and over again that, that you would hear on any other station. But, um, uh, growing up in radio, I started when I was 13. Uh, so broadcasting was nothing new to me when I got to RE2. Um, I said, but that there's plenty of singles that people know that aren't played on the radio and we need Mm -hmm. to play them because we need to get listeners. Um and we ended up convincing Bruce. We just started doing it, and we convinced Bruce, and and he agreed. Um, But we always honored that we were not Clone Zone, that we weren't just pretending to be some top forty, um, imitation station, which we weren't. We had a lot of different shows, and and with, with the jazz programming, I mean, I can only really speak to that. And I guess Rock and Roll Oasis. Um, I don't recall who the who the student program director was for the Rock and Roll Oasis at the time. Um, but we even started playing a lot of singles on that and it and all of a sudden the listeners started really responding well to it because you have to do that nice mix between singles and unfamiliar stuff. And that's what makes a, a, a cool, you know, familiar and unfamiliar is what makes a cool mix. When right. you go all unfamiliar, nobody knows how to relate to it. And, um, and we were able to convince Bruce of that. So we were really that first generation in 2000 that broke that wall down. Um, and that was a big feat. We were really excited about that. Um because now it allowed us to kind of compete a little bit more aggressively in the college radio market.
0: Yeah, it, it brings a big smile to my face to hear you talk about that, because when when I was program director in 92, 93, it was the the time of the grunge revolution, mm-hmm. and every commercial radio station in New York started playing all the things that we were playing. So it wasn't just W D R E. Or WNEW or WBAB. It was K-Rock. It was Z100. It was WPLJ. Everyone was playing the things that we were playing. And then the program director who followed me, Christy Jansberg, and the rock producer, John Lane, they really made it part of the policy. Like We're, we're going to do something that's not being done on commercial radio because everyone's trying to sound like us. And I know that that was uh, of the moment because then things started to shift away. And I was curious when when things would kind of kind of shift back, and that you told yeah, that and story I worked really... LIR
1: and GRE during my college radio time. Um, yeah. There, so I was starting to develop a, a palette for the alternative rock, um, and the new wave, and um, and modern rock. And um, we had talked about doing that at the very end of my tenure at at Rhu. Hmm. We talked about doing um, an alt rock show. And, uh, my friend and I, Chris Simone, Chris was there in the nineties and then he came back as a community volunteer. We experimented with it on the overnight. Bruce let us kind of play around with that idea, but it never took. But then I, I know years later they actually did an alternative rock format mm-hmm. on the station for a little, a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was fun to, it was fun to kick that around. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, the station was a really, it was a really big deal. It had a decent size signal, as yeah. you know, and, um, and everybody took it real seriously. Um, every, every part of it real seriously, you know, uh, yeah, it had its flaws, but, um, but it was, it was something special. You actually did feel like you were part of something big. I mean, I, I remember being very impressed by it with the pledge drives. And how much money uh Bosch's program brought in, and Frank and Gordon we had sure. the do up groups come in, and I brought out the real to real machine and we we would do tape feedback to give the reverb as best we could i mean uh, we it was fun uh, they really let us experiment and have a good have a good time there there there's some nice memories there
0: that's excellent. Let's get back to talking about you joining. Hofstra Radio. So this is a two part question and answer it, however, makes sense to you. But what was it that first brought you to Hofstra Radio? And then if you could try to give us a mental picture, an audio picture of what the station was like, maybe people that you met, time of year, things like that. What was it like when you first got to WRHU?
1: Uh well, I again, I started in radio when I was a, a kid. And so that's what I wanted to do. So I was going to St. Francis High School in La Cunyata, California. And I always wanted to live in New York, and my college guidance counselor, who was excellent, mm-hmm. said, well, I've got a few colleges that have a radio station, um, and I like to drive. Um, so I didn't necessarily want to be in Manhattan, but I wanted to be very close to Manhattan. So we looked at a few different stations um, and a few different colleges around, you know, in Connecticut and um, in the city. And then we went to Hofstra, and um, I really loved the campus, and I was impressed with the radio operation. And so that's where I chose. And uh, my very first friend that I met there, we're still very close friends today. It was Danielle DeLillo, which I'm sure you've spoken to. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, uh, she was very welcoming to me, and we still laugh about that, Um, that we're still very close today. And, um, I remember taking the training class, um, and, you know, when you're 18, you think you know it all. Um, but I, I kept my mouth shut, but there was stuff that I didn't know. Actually, the one thing that I really learned from Hofstra, if you really want to know that Mm -hmm. was nothing to do with radio. It was, um, something that Bruce actually sat me down and it's, 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 uh, advice that I still take to this day. He sat me down. In uh, well, at the time it was called Bits and Bytes. I don't know what it's called now. Although we had a different name for it, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "David, let them come to you." And I didn't quite know what he meant at that point, um, but I, I learned later. It's um, he's like, just let them come to you. You'll have a better experience with people. And it was really, I learned much better how to interact with people at WRHU than I had ever before in my life and those were the lessons that I took away from that radio station um how to manage people better how to um how to uh, uh uh talk to people how to how to better make friends and a lot of that was was great guidance from Bruce that it was very very valuable um I know that's quite a, l- a little bit off the tangent to the second part of your question um but what was the thing that I I remember when I first got there mhm um, well, I'll tell you, I have the original board in my living room. It's in a closet. We saved it. Thanks to Andy Gladding, they were going to throw it away. The board that you worked on, uh, mm-hmm. the Wheatstone. Uh, so that was saved. I remember that. I remember seeing the original studio, and I wish I had taken a picture of like the whole studio put together. Right. Uh, but I didn't. But I think I do have a picture in an old brochure somewhere of that. I should try to find it. Um, I remember seeing the new studio being built. I remember thinking this is this is the real deal. This is a, they have a lot of money here and they take it very, very seriously. And that's that was really special to see that. That was the first thing that I that I took away. And I remember being nervous on my interview Um, when they interviewed. I thought, God, if I don't get in, then what did I come here for? You know, I remember being very nervous about that. Um, hmm. uh, But no, it, it all worked out Um, that that was my first impressions
0: hmm it's yeah it's remarkable that you traveled you know three thousand miles you you moved across the country to come to this radio station which which kind of brings me back to something that you said earlier you said you started working in radio at 13. and this isn't really about hofstra radios is about you what was it about radio or what drew you in at first
1: oh i was always fascinated with radio i loved it um it was it was really interesting to me so my parents um, they uh, they would fall asleep, and at night I would stay up and I'd watch. You know, when I was five or six, Johnny Carson or the Late Late Show with Tom Snyder. Mm-hmm. I would see the m- movies play on TV, and then the station would sign off. There's still, a couple stations signed off at night, and I was always fascinated with broadcasting, and I loved radio. So I would listen to. Um, I really liked the oldie station. There was a little big band station called KGRB out of West Covina. Um. And the guy that ended up becoming my my mentor that taught me everything about radio, Lyman J. he, I would listen to him when I was a kid and he had the most beautiful voice and the, in the way he would speak to people, um, was just incredible. Uh, it was so intimate and, um, he was the one that taught me how to speak on the radio, but he just had this way. I can't, I can't explain it. I could send you an air check so you can mix it into this. Um, So you could actually hear what he sounded like. He just had a way of speaking to the listener. And um, so I would air check. I used to have this thought that it won't always be like this. So I would air check off the radio and I would air check Huggy Boy, who was on KRLA and Oldie Station and and Lyman and a ton of different radio stations. And I was fascinated with it. Um, And I remember going in the 80s to see KNBC Channel 4 and seeing the automated uh, beta cart machines and with the robotic arm, take the tapes out and put it in the play. It was just very neat to watch. And I thought, wow, this is like a really interesting industry. So it's just, I was always attracted to it. And I was, I was just always loved the radio. I just like the the magic of it. I mean, it was a lot more special than I think um, you could argue um, it is now. Unfortunately, there are some great stations. I'm fortunate to work with a great station. That's still all live and local 24 um, seven. But um on a, on the whole the industry certainly uh uh needs to ha- get revitalized a little bit i think we can all agree um in a way but um but i'm glad there's some people that are doing that um because i think radio is such a beautiful medium um it's just it's uh there there's so much to offer so i saw that as a kid and i wanted to to be part of that
0: mm Uh, that's really powerful that I've spoken to a number of people who love radio as, as a medium, as, as we, as we do, we're radio people. We're talking about these things, even though we're not at Hofstra radio anymore. And some of us have had careers in it. So obviously it's meaningful, but I want to get back to you starting at the station. You go through this interview, you're nervous, but you get accepted and then you start training classes. So you've already got some experience. You've got some knowledge of radio. What's happening in those engineering and announcing classes? What did you learn or, or what, uh, was, uh, was new to you or reinforce time? You need
1: to ask Danielle what she said during my training class. Um, it was, I'm not going to repeat it <laughs> <laughs> during the training class. You have to ask her. Um, it, it's one of my favorite, um, favorite quotes that she's ever said. um, uh, uh, so you have to go back and, and ask her just, she'll know what I'm, I'm speaking of. Okay. Um, the, I didn't know. It was, it was standard. It was where you started making friends. I remember making friends with Andy Falzone there, uh, um, uh, and Andy Gladding, uh, and a few other people. Um, it was, I, it was a class. I mean, it was, it was fine. I, you know, um, I don't remember much more than that. I remember I became the guy training people. And I remember being told they were all afraid of me, but I made them um, uh, I made them a good board op or I made them a good announcer because I was so tough on them. Uh, Like I really was tough on them. I'd be like, no, you didn't segue that right. Do it again. Um, No, that's not right on the board. You need to do it again. No, this is how we edit tape. Do it again. And they were all terrified. But they all said, no, it's because of you that it, it became it became easier. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I think that, that that's was the beauty of Hofstra is that of RHU at that time, that there were no free passes. Like you really, we, this was, we were really trying to strive to be a top-notch institution. And the only way you learn is to be
0: um, held, you know, people holding you to task. Hmm. So, so that story about being, you know, a, a tough, but, but, you know, fair instructor, where does that, uh, relate to that conversation you mentioned earlier with Bruce about, you know, let them come to you. Was that about the same oh, time? No, no, no that, that
1: was, that was more of a personal thing. I, um, okay. I, when I started at Hofstra, um, again, when you're 18, you know, yeah, I had worked at a lot of stations. Um, and I guess they were very patient with me, but I think that that was, it's hard to um, sometimes realize, realize how you're coming across to people or, or relating to people. Okay. And I think Bruce saw that, and he wanted to correct it before um, before it became a, a bigger problem with me later in life. And I remember him sitting down, and it was more like fatherly advice. And I remember thinking, well, what, what did I do wrong? And he said, well, you haven't done anything wrong, but um, we— I see something I want to I want to nip it in the bud. I remember him saying that. Um, and I remember me shaken up after the conversation. I was like, geez, I, I don't think I talked to anybody. What the heck did I do wrong? But then when it sank in, um, I realized what a great conversation it was. I think that's the more important thing about WRHU. It wasn't so much to become the next famous radio broadcaster. I think it was really how to relate to other people. At least I think, R.H.U. for different – everybody had their own thing they took away from it. For me, that's what it was. Hmm. It was how do I manage people? How do I manage friendships? How do I uh, come across to people? How do I improve that? Um, That's what I took away from Um, W.R.H.U. That was the most important thing to me to take away from there. Somebody else may have taken something completely different away from there. Um, but I was just, uh, um, I, I was just, uh, I was very grateful for that and for the guidance from Bruce. I mean, you no, know, he and I would have some powwows, but they were good. They were very constructive and it was a really good experience to have those powwows with a, with a, a general manager, you know, cause we would disagree on stuff on the way the station should sound. Um, but he did give you your day in court. And I appreciated that. And sometimes he would say, okay, and sometimes he wouldn't, but it was, it was run like a real radio station, just what you would have, um, in any station that you worked at, uh, professionally. So like, it was interesting when I would go to LIR and things that ha- would happen at LIR that were never allowed to happen at, at, um, at WRHU. And I would come back to WRHU later that afternoon. I'm like, well, it's this is very different environment here, but, um, yeah it was it, i think that, the, that that was what was very special about that radio station he really tried to run it like a professional operation in that aspect he really wanted the students to have their say and feel like it was their station but he didn't allow it to go out of control and i think that that's the important thing because i've seen some college stations that are out of control and it's it's not a good sight so um uh, that I was very grateful for.
0: Mm. Um, you've spoken, uh, a lot about Bruce. You've mentioned Andy Gladding, Andrew Falzone, Danielle DeLillo, who are some other people that were around? And, and this is again, a two part question. Um, I have a feeling you were pretty comfortable at the station right away, given your experience, but, uh, were you comfortable pretty quickly and who were some of the other people who were around that helped you get comfortable?
1: Nobody helped me get comfortable. Um, It was, I was certainly, I I feel like I was a little bit more um, treated differently. I was always told who's this kid who's got, you know, who thinks he's has all this experience. Um, I don't remember being very welcomed at the beginning, except for Danielle, she was great. Um, I think that that came with time. Mm -hmm. I earned that respect with time. Um, that's why I said that conversation happened about my first six months, and my first six months were real rocky. I didn't know if I was even gonna stay at the station. um and then all of a sudden it clicked. Then I just started getting along with everybody. I think they I was always told people said all right he's he's okay. he's okay. but they didn't know what to make of me. Um so so my first six months were not easy. I just went in and did my shift. The radio part was fine; it was second nature to me. Um, you know, I was just like, "Well, I'm just going to get, you know, keep getting better on the air." That's what I'm just going to focus on. I'll just use this as a vehicle to to just improve my skills more and more and more. Um, uh, but I wasn't fully welcomed until really after my first semester there, and then it just started. Uh, it just started clicking Hmm. and um and that was uh that was special when all of a sudden I started getting along with people I mean I became very close friends with Mike DiPetrillo who was the station manager uh with his girlfriend uh Emily Tweedy who was the program director um at the time and those are interesting stories there um that I'll leave for somebody else to tell um I uh who else do I re- really remember there? Oh, well, Justin Strauber was the student engineer at the time. He was a really nice guy. And, the, and this this wonderful woman, Marcy Skolnick. I don't remember her title there. Uh, she might have been like running the Ska show, but don't quote me on that. I remember uh, a really peaceful, nice person that did run Classics from Hofstra originally, Erin Gilrain. Um, she was lovely. She was very nice. Um, We had a lot of nice conversations. Of course, L.J. Zabelski, who was, I think, the station manager at the time that I started. Okay, um, I remember everybody uh, holding Sean Novat in very high regard, uh, but Sean and I did not get along when we first met. Um, but we get along very well now, and he's doing very well at WHBC. Yeah, um, I think he just got nominated uh, for for station, uh, college station of the year or something, and and he's a really great guy. He's done really great things. Um. Uh hold on, I'm racking my I'm racking my brain. Oh well sure, Tammy Baco, she she ran the aggressive edge. And I remember th- um I remember sitting with her one night and she says, Watch, we're gonna get a bunch of prisoners from Nassau uh County police calling and requesting songs. I said, You are not sure enough. Uh, the jail would call and the prisoners would request songs because they would listen to her all the time on the aggressive edge. I remember that. I remember one day I had to fill in on the aggressive edge. I knew nothing about heavy metal, um, but I used my character that I was using on 98, five, the bone um, metal Dave. I was metal Dave that was listening to Slayer's greatest hits on cassette. On my, on my hog. As I rode my hog down. Hempstead. <laughs> <term>. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, oh, and then I was Davey McPlotkin. On um on uh when I had to fill in on the Long Ireland show, um, because Eileen Cronin was out doing the St. Patrick's Day parade, she was covering that. So I was Davy McPlotkin. Um, and this is where I learned not to say happy St. Patty's Day. She called me, she says, Don't say St. Patty's Day. So why? And she said, St. Patrick's Day. Patty's a derogatory term. And I said, I never knew that. How about that? Um oh, I remember Nino. And Rosa. Um, and and I I I wasn't paying attention while I was running the console for them, and he threw a card at my head. Oh no. But it, oh, very lovingly. It was very lovingly. Um oh yeah. I mean, I, I I was a record collector of 78 RPM records, so I got along instantly with Gordon and Frank. Um and uh I remember there was a nice gentleman named Jerry Orbach. No, no, Jerry Urbach, not Jerry Orbach, Jerry Orbach was the actor. Jerry Urbach uh, with a U. And he was a really nice guy. And he taught me the lesson. Here's another lesson: Don't talk back to a cop, because uh, a cop had screamed at me because I was uh, I honked at him um, when I was cutting through Eisenhower Park because he almost ran me off the road. So I just honked, and I remember the cop rolling out his window, screaming at me, and I was really shaken up because you know you're 19 years old, and the cops screamed at you. And uh, Jerry you said, "Don't ever yell at a cop." <laughs> so there's another RHU lesson. Um, oh, of course, Professor Lisi, she was lovely. Um, oh, God, I remember, uh, Dean Back, Dean George Back, loved the Jazz Cafe, and he would call and make requests, um, all the time, and I I pissed Bruce off something awful, because I guess, I don't know if they didn't get along, I don't know what happened, but, um, uh, Dean Back would call, and he would say, I want you to play Chet Baker for me, and when the, Mm -hmm. you know, the Dean calls, you do it, so I said, well, this one's for, um, Uh, the big boss upstairs. And boy, Bruce heard that. And I, he was happened to be walking by the window as he heard that through the speaker. And he stopped, he looked at me and then he came in and he lit me up. He said, I'm the boss of the station. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, it's just radio. I was making a radio thing. So yeah, I got yelled at for that. Um, Yeah. Oh man. I mean, there's a lot of people uh, that, that I remember I could go on. I mean, there's a lot of neat stories um, for certain, I remember testing the Marty and, uh, it was like one in the morning and I was with Andy Gladding and I think Andrew fell and we ended up in Wyandanche and I had a huge crown Victoria and now it had this big, this big, um, uh, antenna on the car. So it looked like a police car and, um, and Wyandanche was very, very gang, um, related at least it was then. And, um. And people started shouting at the car because they thought we were cops or the feds or something. And I thought, uh-oh, we're in a really bad situation. Let's get out of here. Um, yeah. And then, uh, of course, 9-11. Um, uh, that was tough, being on the air all day with that. And I remember, but it's funny, I, I blotted a lot of that out. The uh, At some point, I must have gone to the top. Maybe to set up a, a mic or something up there for the reporter, and we were at the top of – where's the transmitter? Is that Constitution Hall? Constitution, or, yeah. And um, one of the towers had fallen, and the TV was on in the background because you have the lounge there. But we you could see the other tower off in the distance, and then um I lost my bearings. I couldn't find it. And then I heard on the TV that the second tower has fallen. So that was upsetting to see that. Even from a distance, it was very upsetting to actually see it fall. Then I must have run down back to the to the studio um, to be back on the air there. Um, But but I don't remember. I remember very little of that day. I remember I was in Professor Babak's class and, and waking up to see that a plane had hit the tower. And she had said... Um, she had kind of made light of the situation. I remember that. And she apologized to the class the next time we had class. But I remember thinking I have to get out of this class and um and uh I get to the radio station, which is exactly what I did. Um and that's how important that station was,
0: you know, to us. Um That's that's something I talked to to Bruce Avery about recently. We we had another conversation and we talked about there are these major events. And so many of us, it's not every person, but a lot of us are programmed to something happens. I need to get to the station. I need to be part of this. I need to do what I can. And it sounds like that was, that was your impulse that day is I need to get to the station to be part of this, to do my part yeah. in covering this.
1: Yeah. And, and I haven't listened to that tape since then, um, I don't remember who was on the air. I think Mike DiPetrillo was on the air, I think. I don't remember anymore. Um yeah. I remember a lot of stuff, but I just kind of blurred out that day. I remember going down. Well, this starts getting the 9/11 thing, so I'll 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 stop it there, but I remember going down. The I think we were able to get to, in there the day after with Mike. I went with Mike uh down to ground zero. Maybe it was maybe it was a week after. Something like It was probably more a week after, I think. Um yeah that was pretty upsetting but we'll leave it there um Mm. yeah i mean there was a lot that happened that station was the center of a lot of people's universe i mean you could find me there on a saturday doing music logs i have um if you ever want to post all the pictures on the blog i did a whole beautiful um uh tour of that station then um with the old music office with my typewriter and um and all the really like publicity shots of the studios and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of neat stuff that we did there it was, it was really important and it was neat when we would go out into the general public and people would say, Oh, I listened to the station. I mean, it wasn't not listened to. Um, and that was really special too. It's taken a turn now. It's interesting to see a lot of people aren't interested in becoming disc jockeys anymore. They're, they're much more interested in either news or, or really more talking about themselves. So we were always taught, don't talk about yourself. Talk about what's going on, and talk about the music. Now it's completely different. It's talk about yourself, um, which is which is really interesting. So, so I find because I teach at a couple colleges um, on the side, and I find that the students are much more interested in almost hosting like their own podcast on the radio and talking about what's going on in themselves and stuff. And I've heard from people that are at RITU now that people are interested in journalism and sports, but music does not seem to be an interest. Was Back then, music was a very big focus. So that was also very interesting to, to see how it's
0: kind of changed. Mm, that's very interesting. Was, was music and broadcasting more of your focus when you started at the station or were you more interested in the technical or was it the whole thing?
1: Well, I was always interested in everything. I think the best broadcaster knows how to do everything. Um, so I was always interested in that. Um, I liked being on the air. Um, I always have. Uh, but I, I knew I didn't want a career in being on the air. I interestingly enough, my whole career is um, since then has been production. Even during then at, at WLIR, was the production director um, during college. Um, but um, I always took a fascination with the engineering. Um, and I, I do engineering on the side, um, uh, but I always think that it's best to know everything uh, because that, that gives you a full fundamental understanding of everything that goes into broadcasting and the business, and it makes you a better broadcaster. So I didn't have just one interest in one thing. I had, you know, do, do I think back at W R Q and what, what? Sure, do I wish I could have done stuff better? Absolutely. I think back. Wow, I should have marketed this differently, or I should have played these songs, right. or I should have tackled this differently. But, um, yeah, it was very, um, it was very interesting to think back and just how much the industry's changed, and it's it's discouraging a little bit that um, radio is not um, the focal point for people born after 1995, I would say. You know, they haven't grown up with it like we right. did. And I think they're missing out. And I think places like WRHU are, are a great vehicle to show people how special radio can be. Um, uh, uh, I think that, that if, and and I do see a lot of students give it a chance, you know, at, at these other places. And once they get bit by the radio bug, they get bit. They love it. They love being on the air. There's something very special about it. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see how it's all changed.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It has definitely changed over time, which I think is the nature uh, of of things anyway. But there's there's that special quality about places like WRHU and and other community stations where it is a community and it is a learning and it is a chance to experiment. And as you were just saying, sometimes you wish you could have done things a little bit differently or played a different record or said something differently. But that's your chance to experiment and to try and to grow. One thing, um,
1: one of my favorite stories is. Uh during the Hofstra morning wake-up call, which was the morning um, morning show, um, I was on there, I think, guest hosting for one day. And usually they wouldn't get a whole lot of calls. But I brought up a law that was on the books still in LA where you can't play the hurdy-gurdy, uh, which is this medieval instrument between 2 and 4 a.m. or something. I don't know, whatever the law was. And about eight people called, listeners, saying, oh, my hurdy-gurdy story is crazy, and, and all of a sudden, we started talking about the hurdy-gurdy on the hostel morning. Week. <laughs> and, man, I remember when we got off, people we were like, Who would have thought the hurdy-gurdy would have been such a hot topic? Um, so it was really interesting to me what what sparked people's interests. I think it's a big mistake what people make, um, today is they're like, Oh, mass appeal, mass appeal. Um, wouldn't want to talk about the hurdy gurdy. A mass appeal wouldn't want. I don't believe that. First of all, there is no mass appeal in in certain ways anymore. Um, look at YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. Look at these specialized things on TikTok, YouTube, you name it, and how they have 50,000 views or whatever, and that's just for the people that happen to stumble across that or find it. Um, I don't think there is a true mass appeal. Yes, there is, but um, but I think. Um, loyal appeal is much more important. I'd rather have 35,000 loyal listeners or loyal followers um, that want to talk about hurdy-gurdy than one million mass appeal that have you on in the background and aren't really paying attention. Um, and I think that that's also what's what's interesting about um, how things have changed um, is that with different vehicles like a YouTube or like um, a Twitter, Instagram, uh, uh, Facebook podcasts, whatever. Um, we see how people really like to zero in on a specific talk topic. I mean, look at crime con, right? It's all, those are all crime podcasters. I don't think any of them are on the radio. And, um, although I would argue podcasting is radio, it's just radio on demand. Um, but look at that. I mean, uh, uh, that's just specifically, uh, crime. I'm sure there's comic, uh, comic book podcasts that people love too and um, uh, you, you know are they huge mass appeal um, shows I don't know but I think that that's that's the interesting thing and that's what was always the interesting thing about um. I changed my opinion I had an opinion back at Hofstra that we should have been one format during the week and then do specialty shows on the weekend why I'd still partly agree with that that's what I do at at the other college stations. Um, I uh, um, I I slightly think that the beauty of college radio also is to present different, unique shows um, uh, that that people can also download. I don't know if an appointment listening is 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 there anymore, but different unique shows that you can't get anywhere else. I think Bruce was was right on that you should present topics you can't get anywhere else um, and ideas you can't get anywhere else and not so much the music that you can't get anywhere else um, and I, I I think it would be neat to see more of that because um, Hostra gave you a chance to do that you know and I wish I had a clearer thought of that then. Because there's so many interesting topics like I'll give you one one for for instance I did a um and it wasn't for rhu although I wish we had aired it on W.R.H.U. it was a it was a ghost hunting um project that I did and I actually caught a ghost on tape no joke what' mm-hmm. it was at random hall in oyster Bay and it was ringing a bell I did it with my friend Chris Simone and ghost hunting, everything, you know you turn on TV and there's 400 ghost hunter programs. You have to understand then there was no ghost hunter programs. You didn't even know who ghost. I interviewed a Long Island ghost hunter and I remember asking a question, what's a ghost hunter? You know what I mean I knew, but like what is this? what's a you know the, it, so it was very um, embryonic stages. It was like 2001. I think ghost hunters didn't come on the air until 2006. Um wow. when I was at, so that would have been a really cool program. And I kicked myself for not doing that on WRHU. Um, it would have been amazing because I was I was good at getting people to do interviews, um, and, and everybody wanted to talk about their ghost experiences. So, you know, I that's what I mean by I think back. I'm like, oh, that's a real missed opportunity at that rate. We would have been one of the first on the air. I'm sure there was a ghost program somewhere but oh, in the area anyway um, with a ghost hunter program. And nobody would have known what a ghost hunter was because it just wasn't except you. If you were really into that, it really wasn't common knowledge until until the TV show came out in, in 2005 or six or whatever it was. So um that would have been really neat uh, to do that. And I know Bruce would have gone for that um, because it was just a cool topic, especially on a college station. It just would have been really neat. Um, But Hofstra let you do that. Not all college stations let you do that. You can't just walk in and present something after a semester, you know, uh, at every station. So I, I think that was the real beauty of that, too.
0: That that is a real commonality in the interviews. I mean, I, I remember talking to Sue Zizza and she walked in and said, I want to produce a, a Christmas program and then boom, she's hooked in, you know, she's involved in radio theater for the next, you know, several decades, and other people walk in and say, Well, can't we do this or can't we do that? And whether it was Bruce Avery or Sue or Jeff Krauss, there's this consistent openness that you know, you have to sell the idea you have to be passionate and knowledgeable and, and have an idea but uh, you can do those things and it's it's nice to see that uh, that that spirit was there through your time and and I think hopefully still to this day
1: one other thing we did was did we did cross-pollination of the shows so yeah. I would have Frank and Gordon um, I think Frank I don't think Gordon came in and did the show with me but a couple times Frank came on uh, with me on the jazz cafe and we did the roots of duop. But it would be like the Ink Spots or the Mills Brothers or the New Spirits of Rhythm, uh, groups from the 30s that were the roots of doo-wop, but mm-hmm. still transcended the Jazz Cafe. It's great cross-pollination. Um uh, supporting his show on the jazz cafe and saying, well, you know, if you want to listen to do up whatnot and, and, and people loved it. They really responded really well to that when we did that, we did the roots of like blues on the jazz cafe where we would then push it off to the rock and roll uh, Oasis, which followed the jazz cafe. And then that would do more modern stuff. Um, yeah. That was really special to do that too. Um, we really liked Cross pollinate because it because it, it tied the station together. All of a sudden, it started telling a story of the station, and that um, it was all there was a method to the madness. I wish again. I wish we had done more of it, but that was not a missed opportunity. We saw it, and we all said, "Well, why don't we do this?" And I said, "Well, let's do it. The jazz cafes during the midday. If you can make a case um, to where we can really sit down and plot this out, let's plot it out and let's do it." Um, uh, we did one island jazz, uh, which which um, which then transcended to the reggae show, um. So we mm. did stuff like jazz from Trinidad from nineteen, you know, like a, a guy named King Radio, from uh, uh nineteen thirty nine or whatever it was. And um and so we pushed him off to the uh, reggae program uh by doing a thing on that and maybe it wasn't a whole show maybe it was just for an hour or something but it was it was neat uh we interviewed tons of neat people too um uh Al Casey Al Casey who was Fats Waller's guitarist uh mm-hmm. Johnny Blowers who was a drummer for Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra um I mean uh, it was really interesting. And, and that was, those were set up by a former uh, R.H.U. alumnus that was on the air back in the eighties. Um, so it, it, the station, it had a nice, people wanted to, to, to blend it all together and, and, and really work together. There was really nice camaraderie there. I mean, there was inner political BS that I don't think exists there now from talking to people, but um There there were some, there was some, uh, uh, inner, inner politics stuff that made it not as fun as well. Um, but I, it all worked itself out. Uh, Um, you know,
0: yeah, you get passionate people and young people together in a room. There's, there's going to be some elbows, but usually things work out pretty well.
1: Well, it wasn't about radio. It was just about people that, um, their egos were, they needed to grow up. Um, that's, that was the dark side of the station. The station did have a dark side in that period of time that there was, um, uh, there were different factions, little cliques, um, and, uh, um, and you had, a, a, a student person in leadership that were main nameless, um, that, uh, that created a lot of those cliques and was very deceitful. And, um, and it was a hard time at the station for a lot of uh, a lot of people and uh, and some people left. Um, some people were very fed up and they were just coming to do the show like it was tough. And then I think we all but what was good is we all recognized what the problem was. And like a cancer, you cut the problem out. And then all of a sudden it was like a rain cloud had lifted. So like my last year there was was quite lovely. Um, It was it was very it was very easy going, And I, from what I understand, it's been very easygoing and relaxed since then. So it was a growing pain, you know, and not everything is always easy, um, all the, a hundred percent of the time. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but again, it was a good learning experience cause you learn how to deal with inner politics and, and, and how do you deal with, with, uh, uh, people that, that are, that are difficult, that, that could be spreading difficulty. Um, so you take that, bad experience and you make it a learning experience. And I think that's exactly what this, the station's designed to do. Um, it presents a bad problem. You don't become a better manager if if um, if it's always easy. You become a better manager if there's problems. So I would argue that, that that was a good thing that that happened because you learned how to deal with a problem that you never encountered before. And it was a great learning experience, I think, for everybody. And we all look back and we're like, yeah, we well, know we dealt with that pretty well. So I think, you know, that was good that was a good thing. Um, and, uh, uh yeah, I, 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 look back fondly. There's still some things that, you know, you think, ah, that aggravated me. But, um, but on a whole, I look back very fondly with nice memories on that station.
0: So, so obviously we, we have all these memories and you have such a, a unique perspective having experience before coming to Hofstra in radio and really having an idea that, that you wanted to be, uh, in that, that industry. But I'm going to ask you to go back at 17 years old, 18 years old. You make the decision to go to Hofstra and either when you first get to the station or, or getting started there, um, at that moment in time, what did you hope WRHU would mean to you in those early days at the station?
1: I just thought it would be a great place to continue honing my skills. I, I didn't really have any expectations. It looked like a nice operation. I know you want some sort of eloquent, deep answer, but there really isn't any. I just thought, okay, um, this will be a place where I can, I can further grow. Um, you know, I didn't think I was God's gift to radio. Um, I just, I knew I, I still needed to grow more, um, on the air and in my skills. And I just thought it was the next stepping stone. And it was. It helped me get the job at WLIR. Um, and from WLIR, I got the job at where I am now at 1010 Winds. So it worked. Um, and I made some great friends out of there. Actually, I um, aside from one person I talked to um, uh, that was not at the station, I think all my other Hofstra friends are from that radio station. Mm -hmm. Um, oh my, only my friend Jessica did not work at the station, but I would argue she was loosely affiliated because she was in the acting program. Um, yeah, no, I, that's really what it was. It was just, okay, this looks like a good operation. It looks sound. It looks professional. This is, this, this is, this is the next step. Um, that's really, and I'm just going to get better here, which I did in many ways.
0: Hmm. Um, in my interview with Andrew Falzone, and, and I'll, I'll sort of leave you with this, he said, you know, if radio could walk and talk and speak and breathe, it would be Dave Plotkin. <laughs> uh,
1: I love radio. I mean, I collect late 20s, early 30s radio broadcasts, and I go back and I listen to them, you know, after I transfer them off these aluminum discs or big 16-inch transcriptions. And it's neat when you hear something that nobody's heard and uh, 80 years. And, um, and you hear how special and beautiful it was, but I still maintain that it is just as special and beautiful. And I really get disappointed when people say radio's dead. I would argue that yes, at some point the over the air transmission vehicle will not be viable, but I would say podcasting is radio. Now we just lost uh, a really great guy, Don K. Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, who was eighty years old when he when he passed, um uh just recently and he was on L I R back in the sixties and of course a doo op shop on CBS FM and he used to get very mad at podcasters. <laughs> I don't think he uh he considered them broadcasters, uh per, per se. But I I think I understand his feeling of that. Um, but I they are broadcasters. They might not be classically trained, all of them. Mm-hmm. Um but they're still doing radio. Um, they're still bringing a show um, and a topic to listeners. Isn't that radio? I mean, okay, great. You can choose when you want to hear the program. You don't have to wait till nine o'clock on a Sunday night to turn on the radio or set your your tape machine to tape it, um, like we did. But um, it's still a show. It's still audio. It's still uh, interviews. I mean, to me, it's still radio. So I I think, and to see how well podcasting is doing, um, I would say radio is very, very much alive. It just took a, it took a left turn. It it took a turn that twenty five years ago nobody would have thought it would have taken. So it's still very much alive. Um, It's just it's not. It's it's morphing. It's changing uh, yet again. where it will be in 25 years? I don't know. Will you have a WXXX? I, maybe not. I don't know. Um, Or will it become, will it go through research and become a boutique industry? Um, Maybe. I, I don't think anybody knows. But um, I don't, I refuse to give up on it because um, it's so beautiful. Where else can you, can you be in a car late at night and you listen to somebody talking to you or you're if you, if there is a disc jockey that's live on the air, um, playing interesting music or whatnot and you're driving and it's that one-on-one when they speak, you don't have that one-on-one with TV. Um, it's very intimate and it's lovely and it's a great way to tell a story. Um, whether it's through music or interviews or just a great storyteller and that's beautiful. And that's what radio really is. And I think when people, um, really understand it um i think that that's that's when they really
0: appreciate the true value of of broadcasting and radio dave that's that's gorgeous that's fantastic thank you for sharing that thank you for sharing all these stories no doubt you have lots more stories and and i think we should uh hopefully make some time to uh share some more of those stories this has been great Absolutely. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure.